Hey, Real Talkers, Remembrance Day has evolved over the years. Canada's role in international peacekeeping missions, along with Afghanistan, Kosovo, Latvia, and other parts of the world, has reminded a new generation of the sacrifices our military members and their families make every day. You'll hear three very different and powerful perspectives during this special episode as Real Talk remembers. This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Well, we want to welcome you to a very special edition of Real Talk, lest we forget. Ahead of Remembrance Day this weekend, this next hour or so is dedicated to honoring the memories, to recognizing the sacrifice and the service of thousands and thousands of Canadian servicemen and women over the years through different conflicts and peacekeeping missions and assignments here at home on Canadian soil. In just a second, you're going to meet three individuals who in different contexts have put themselves out there for many, many years, ensuring that the Canadian forces receive the supports that they need, ensuring that the public understands exactly what goes into service, including the reserves. We're going to talk about conflict. We'll talk about peacetime. We'll talk about mental health. Now, typically, at this point in the show, we would let you know who the presenting sponsor of the episode is, but today's is a little bit different. Our friends at We Know Training are donating their promotional time for this episode to tell you about what's going on at the Juno Beach Center. You know, Chris Labossier, a good friend of this show, is the CEO at We Know Training. He's also a board member for this incredible asset. And at junobeach.org, you can learn a little bit more about the Juno Beach Center. It's Canada's second World War Museum and Cultural Center located in Normandy, France. The center pays homage, homage to the 45,000 Canadians who lost their lives during the war, 5,500 of them losing their lives during the Battle of Normandy, 381 on D-Day. Well, through the years and every single day, regardless of inclement weather or otherwise, a Canadian flag flies at the Juneau Beach Centre. And they've got to pay for those flags out of pocket. So right now, there's a Flags for Juno 80 effort. If you go to the donate link at junobeach.org, you can find the flag sponsorship program. We know training is proudly supporting it. Real Talk is proudly supporting it, and you can as well. Now, they're grateful for donations of any amount, but if you happen to be in a position to donate $500 or more, they're going to send you a Canadian flag that has flown over the Juneau Beach Center, a flag that has flown in Normandy, along with the Certificate of Authenticity. They're hoping to raise $10,000. We know that we've already got 1000 covered, and we're hoping that Real Talkers can step up and make this happen. You can learn more about the Flag Sponsorship Program by visiting junobeach.org. Well, it's a real honor to welcome these three individuals to this Remembrance Day edition of the Real Talk Roundtable. Lieutenant Colonel retired Lori Hahn served for more than 30 years in the Royal Canadian Air Force, the regular force, another seven years in honorary colonel positions. He flew a variety of aircraft, including the T-33 Silver Star, the CF-104 Starfighter, and the CF-18 Hornet, commanding a CF-18 squadron. Uh, you recognize Laurie, of course, as well for his long career on Parliament Hill, uh, winning his seat first in 2006, re-elected in 2008, 
2011, working mainly in the areas of national defense and veterans affairs. He happened to be my member of parliament for about 10 years. Laurie, it's wonderful to have you here in studio. Thanks for joining. Great to be here. And thanks for your vote. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> I didn't say that, Laurie. Oh, I know, I know. I did vote for you, Laurie. I did. Uh, have I ever told you that to your face, by the way? Once or twice. I don't. Yeah, okay, there you go. Jaylen Nye and I, I never voted for Jaylen, yep. but I worked alongside you for many, many years. Uh, a long and storied career in broadcasting, an award-winning journalist who worked in television and radio in many of the major centers across Western Canada. Uh, Jaylen has served as patron of the Edmonton Garrison Military Family Resource Center for more than a decade, and she has served, I know very proudly, as Honorary Colonel of 408 Tactical Helicopter Squadron with the RCAF since 2015. Yeah. You're making your Real Talk debut in studio. It's nice to have you here. It's nice to see you, my friend. Yeah, and Thank we're you. joined remotely by, uh, I know a good friend of, of both of you, Colonel Chris Hunt, has served in the Army for more than 30 years, uh, the first half of his career in the regular force, the second half in the Army Reserve. He deployed on operations in Kosovo and Afghanistan, serving in both frontline and headquarters roles. He's an armored officer and served at the Lord Strathcona's Horse Royal Canadians and the South Alberta Light Horse in Edmonton. And then he commanded the King's Own Calgary Regiment. He currently commands 41 Canadian Brigade Group, which compromises nine Army Reserve units across Alberta with approximately 1,700 soldiers. Colonel, it's wonderful to have you joining us. Uh, where are you joining us from? I'm joining you from Calgary from uh, from my home. Okay, good stuff. Well, thank you for making time for us. Colonel, why don't we start with you? Uh, a simple question, uh, but maybe there's more to it than we might suspect out of the gates. What does Remembrance Day mean to you? Um, for me, it's really a time of uh, it's reflection, it's gratitude, it's, uh, it's sorrow. Uh, I think about those that I've served with who, who didn't come from me. I think about the veterans that I've met over the years, uh, going right back to um, Second World War veterans through uh, Korea, people I've served with overseas. And, uh, you know, particularly many of the World War II veterans uh, are not with us anymore. And I think about their experiences. I think about my experiences. I think about the experiences of my colleagues. And, uh, you know, just take some time to reflect and think about um, their sacrifices, particularly those who didn't come home, and um, and what what it means for Canada and what it means for um, our current generation of soldiers, and ensuring they understand those stories and um, their responsibility to carry the torch forward. I like that you use that word responsibility. Uh, Lori, I mean, I would imagine that you approach Remembrance Day from so many different contexts, including very, very personal experience. Well, <clears throat> excuse me, I do. I, it's, you know, especially in November, but really every day, every day, I think about some of the folks that, that we lost, that, that we personally lost. You know, in the Cold War, there were nobody was firing guns, but we lost nearly a thousand aircrew during the Cold War. And 48 of those were, were personal friends of mine. Uh, my son's godfather, for example. So I think about those folks. I think about the fun that we had flying, and it was it was tremendous fun. Uh, I think about the the trouble we got into and and got out of, uh, and it's just those kind of personal memories that just connect us. And you know, connecting to some of the World War II folks, as uh, as Chris mentioned, uh, some of the folks that served back then that we looked on as young folks as examples of how we should conduct ourselves in 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 the in life. Hmm. And it's just you know, I take inspiration from that. I take inspiration from from some of the young folks I see now who are struggling 
in, in a military that's, that's hard-pressed to do what we used to do. And, but they still got the same kind of dedication, the same kind of spirit, the same kind of joie de vivre, and we need to foster that. And we need to remember what it was in the past and carry that forward. Hmm. I want to talk about the future of Remembrance Day sure. as part of this conversation and your involvement with the No Stone Left Alone initiative as well, which is really remarkable. Uh, Jay Lynn, for like more than 15 years, I think, wasn't it? You you wrote and emceed the annual uh, Provincial Remembrance Day service at the Butterdome yeah. on campus at the University of Alberta. Um, you've done a ton. You've written for Project Heroes, an active member of Operation Restoration, and you now emcee the Remembrance Ceremony at the Beverly Cenotaph. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously very important to you. Incredibly important. And uh, I'm I'm the granddaughter of a RAF veteran, uh, Flight Sergeant Robert Charles Nye, uh, who I don't know much about his history. He always just said he taught people how to drive in World War II and left it at that. Uh, and a father who had uh, a great interest in military history in military history and it's interesting that you showed the Juno Beach Center because that's really where it started for me in 2003 global television sent me to France to cover the opening of that center yeah and I did a documentary called return to Normandy and I remember so just up the road from Juno Beach uh, in Crusoe sur mer there's a there's a Canadian War Cemetery at Benny sur mer mm -hmm. and in that cemetery there's 2044 Canadian soldiers that are buried there and I've been there three different times in the pouring rain and the sun. Um, and it's just a, an incredibly special, special place. But outside of that cemetery, on my first trip, I was talking to a veteran who was there and he was had been in the Battle of Ortona. And he looked at me with tears in his eyes and he said, we'll never have a future if we don't remember the past. Mm. And those words have stuck with me for 20 years now. And one of the things that at that moment, I promised myself that I would move forward to make sure that people elsewhere in Edmonton and Alberta, when I had the opportunity, could remember the past and take a look at the future as well. So reflecting back on, on those who came before and then being able to be involved with our serving members and their families um, ha has has meant the world to me it's been an honor i want to mention that that you were uh, awarded a very prestigious edward r murrow award from the american radio and television news directors association for that documentary return to normandy which you wrote and produced um that 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 like from a career standpoint obviously a highlight but personally yeah. was it that trip that experience that I don't know if I say epiphany, but it obviously resonated with you in a huge way. Was that what maybe kickstarted your significant involvement, subsequent involvement, including with the Military Family Resource Center? Yeah, um, that was a big part of it, but also April 17th, 2002. And um, that was the day that we learned the word of the, uh, word of the first four Canadian soldiers that were killed in Afghanistan. Right. And I think if you were in Edmonton at that time and you were in media at that time, of course, you realized what happened and, and how this community came together to honor uh, those four and um, the widow of one of those four and I became close friends in the year that followed. So there was there was this merging of of that um, of what came before and what had happened right then. And so that's where it started and, and it's gone through. And, you know, we've had we had 158 Canadian soldiers die in Afghanistan and uh, a number of them based here in Edmonton out of 
you know, specifically the third battalion and um, the, the Loyal Edmonton Regiment as well, one of them. Um, but those families I've become friends with and, and got to know and be honored to share their family stories. And again, that is something that um, has fueled my passion to keep moving ahead and doing whatever I can to keep memories alive and and let other people know about what our current members are doing as well. Colonel Hunt, what did Canada's role in Afghanistan do in the context of Remembrance Day, do you think? Maybe in the context of, of, of the next generation of Canadians or a younger generation of Canadians um, ha- having new framing on Remembrance Day and the names they remember and the dates like Jaylin just mentioned that, that stick out in their minds. Well, um, I think it reconnected Canadians with, uh, with the next generation of veterans. Um, you know, this is, it's a 21st century conflict. It's a 21st century war. Um, over 40,000 Canadians served in Afghanistan over the period we were there. Many of them uh, deployed multiple times. And as Jalen pointed out, there's 158 that didn't come home. So, um, you know, it's one thing to read it in a history book. And, you know, it. Uh, I'm starting to feel older now uh, as I'm talking to young soldiers and such who, um, you know, they were born well after I joined the Army. And uh, we have soldiers now that, um, you know, are as young as 18. And so they don't remember Afghanistan. Um, but they're meeting veterans who served there. They have uh, sergeants, warrant officers, officers that serve there that are teaching them to be soldiers now. Just like during the Cold War, um, in the early days of the Cold War, we had uh, veterans of the Second World War that were teaching the soldiers that. So, um, you know, that experience gets passed down. And, and just to say, back to your original question, um, we have a lot of soldiers in Canada that's in combat and um, have that firsthand experience of what Remembrance Day is all about. And so, um, you know, the Afghanistan mission reconnected us with the realities of a dangerous world. And, um, you know, for the the current younger generations of Canadians, uh, I think it, it makes it more real than reading about the first, second world war, Korean war, where there may not be that same personal connection uh, with people they know and people that are part of their their direct lives. Mm. I, I think, sorry, Lori, I think one of the things that Afghanistan did was, again, it put our military obviously back into the forefront and Canadians started to care about their military yeah. again and, and show great support for their military again, which is something that I don't think that we saw, you know, in the in necessarily as much in the decades leading up to that. What I fear now is, you know, Afghanistan, you know, we've been out of Afghanistan for almost 10 years now, yep. 2014. And, you know, in, and I, I worry about that. Is that support waning again? And mm. I've always believed we can't just support our, our members when they are in theater or, theater or um, uh, high profile theater. The fact of the matter is, is that we have members, yep. you know, around the world right now. You take a, you Latvia. take in Latvia coming out of Edmonton right now yep. at third div, the number of soldiers and, and Colonel Hunt can talk to, about this, you know, more as well. The number of soldiers that have rotated through there over the past year and what's expected over the next couple of years is huge. So they're, they're huge numbers. Yeah, and the de- dedication today is, is no different. In fact, it's probably 
well, it's just as strong. I mean, the third division is about 10,000, uh, sorry, 6,000 short. Colonel mm-hmm. Hunt would maybe have a better number of that. The taskings haven't gone away, yeah. but the people are working their, their tails off. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Afghanistan, I was lucky enough to go there seven times. And, and one of my fondest memory as a parliamentarian is the times I spent five Christmases and two mm-hmm. other occasions with the troops in Afghanistan. Wow. In the in the boondocks of the Panjali and waking up Christmas morning with those kind of folks out in the in those boondocks was was very very special to me. My wife wasn't as impressed as I was. <laughs> yeah. But. Would you would you tell us a story? Like, is there one that that sticks out from a, from a Christmas morning in Afghanistan with surrounded you know with, well, among the troops? In fact, I spent a couple of Christmas eves with the Strathconas, which Colonel Hunt would uh, would certainly be familiar with, and just actually one night we had a, a, the luxury of sleeping in a. Uh, um, one of those big cargo things. Most of the time, it was it was intense, uh, and that was a little earlier on. It, it, the accommodations got better as it, as it wore on, but just the spirit of those folks. I mean, Christmas is Christmas, no matter where they were. They were going to celebrate Christmas. Taliban, you know, be damned. You know, we're here. We're going to, and we had Santa Claus. I was there with oftentimes with Peter McKay or Walter Sinchuk or Rick Hillier, those those kind of folks, some other parliamentarians. And it was just the spirit of Christmas was there. Even though we were in a, in a pretty rotten place in the world, mm. some pretty bad things going on, the Canadian spirit was there. And that's what inspired me over there with, with those kind of men and women, just what they did and how they just got on with, with life as it should be. Hmm. Colonel, you, your, your career is interesting. Obviously, the first half of your career in the regular force, the second half in the Army Reserve, and, and, and Jay Lynn just alluded to it, that that expectations of, of Canada's contributions internationally and at home are, are ramping up. Uh, I know that there's been a, a real sort of, a, I guess you'd call it a recruitment drive uh, in the context of the reserves, um, what can you tell people about the reserves and, and who's a good fit and, and how important is the role of the reservist um, in the near future in Canada? Uh, so to start, I think you're seeing a growing importance of the reserves in Canada and how they're integrating in with uh, the regular force. So during Afghanistan, approximately 20% of those who served over in Afghanistan were reservists. Uh, the mission would have been sustainable without them. And we're seeing now that um, the numbers of our tasking levels are starting to increase, and there's more integration of reservists, both as individual augmentees and as foreign elements, uh, into our international missions. And, you know, in 41 Brigade, we've started to receive awarding orders for the next couple of years. Uh, we'll be sending folks to uh, the Middle East, uh, to Europe, uh, in increasing numbers. Last year, we had over 50 reservists from Alberta that uh, served on international deployments. And over the next couple of years, we're expecting that number to be uh, closer to 200. So, you know, out of 1,700, uh, many of whom are still going through their training, uh, it's a it's a significant. Um, so reservists are part-time professional soldiers. And so what that means uh, for a typical reservist is they are training one evening a week. They're in a leadership position. They may be doing administration another evening, uh, and typically one to two weekends a month. And uh, during those weekend training exercises, they'll be doing courses. They'll be going to Wainwright or Suffield and firing their weapons, practicing tactics, doing a wide variety of things. Um, Reservists are also offered full-time summer employment. And so if they're available, they can volunteer to go on full-time service between May 1st and August 31st. And that's typically when the bulk of their training gets done. So uh, more advanced courses uh, as well as what we collect the training exercises. So 
last August, we had about uh, over 300 reserves down Elaine, right? And um, we'll practice tactics at larger levels and such. I'm uh, I'm just browsing some of the the, the, the career opportunities as mm-hmm. they're listed at forces.ca. People can check it out just in the reserves alone. There's like more than 100 of them. Um, and, and it's amazing. I mean, some of it, like what was the one that just jumped out at me, meteorological technician. Well, that's something you wouldn't really think of. Human resources administrator, financial mm-hmm. services administrator. Like there's so many different fits. Really interesting. Um, on, on our live chat right now on YouTube, p- people are sharing their family's personal yeah. stories, which I, I really appreciate. And there's a lot of talk about mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Jalen, I know that, that obviously you're very proud to be serving uh, as a patron of the Edmonton Garrison Military Family Resource Center. It's a family commitment, uh, these men and women that are serving their country. Goes without saying. Uh, but I always think that Remembrance Day gives us uh, that reminder on how important it is to talk about it and maybe focus on the supports that are there. And maybe the supports that aren't there right now that need to be. You know, it's it's uh, the 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 Edmonton MFRC is um, it's so far ahead of you know a lot of the programs that they're they're offering, and in fact, they have developed over the past number of years. Um, specific programs for our members with OSIs, occupational stress injuries, but they've also, um, you know, been on the forefront of developing programs for the children of our members, Mm. right? And we've actually seen that program transfer over to Wounded Warriors Canada, and you might have heard about the Warrior Kids program. So the stuff that's happening in Edmonton out there is is, uh, front and center, but the, the MFRC offers support to our members from you know, it can be something as, you know, movie night for the kids to uh, pre-deployment um, uh, information sessions or emergency cash if needed or emergency babysitting. And I've gone in to do some training on even just what to do on your social media accounts or how to handle your social media accounts if you're away in your families and, and that sort of stuff. So they cover a huge gamut of, of services. And I think probably Lori and Chris could pr- talk a little bit more as members and and how it supported them over the years. Well, I was not in a situation that the Army folks are in now. Uh, but even then, there was, you know, we were deployed not in combat, mm-hmm. but we were deployed in, in you know, could be dangerous operations. I mean, fighter flying is inherently not yes. safe. And so there was always, you know, problems with that. I mean, I lost a guy when we were in Europe. I mm-hmm. lost a guy uh, back in Cold Lake. Mm-hmm. And the problem was I was stuck on an airplane across the Atlantic and I got a phone call from the from the wing commander in Cold Lake saying we just lost this young mm-hmm. guy. And I was so angry, A, that we lost him and B, that I couldn't be there, mm-hmm. you know, with, with the troops. And that's where uh, family stepped in. My, my wife became became me, yeah. you know, and, and went to the wife and the family. And, and that's, you know, everybody supports everybody else uh, in good times and bad. And, and that's obviously one of the bad times. And a lot of stuff happens that, that civilians just don't appreciate. But people like us in the military, closely associated like you have been, Jillian, with the military, would understand. So it is everybody working together. When bad stuff happens, that's when our strength mm-hmm. as an organization comes comes forward. And that was, you know, one example for me of, of a few that I've had. Chris, can we get you to, to comment on that as well? The supports available to families, not just to families of soldiers on operations, but to families when casualties happen as an example? Yeah, absolutely. And the Military Family Resource Centers played an incredibly important role in that because you've got full training dedicated the civilian staff that are integrated with uh, the military community. 
Um, we also have a military family resource center in Calgary that supports Southern Alberta with uh, sort of detachments from Red Deer and Las Bridge as well. And so um, they not only run those programs, but they create the relationships with families so that when things go wrong, um, people already have that personal connection and are more willing to access programs and uh, be given the supports that they need. Uh, certainly, the Military Family Resource Centers play an important role in knitting together military families. So you have unit events and everything. There's barbecues, there's Christmas parties, all that good stuff. Um, those tend to be a little bit ad hoc because they're organized through the units and, you know, our focus is training. The Military Family Resource Centers layer on top of that and provide, you know, some pro very professional folks that um, make those events happen, provide the support for them, dial us into the local community. And, and I should mention just something else that's really exciting down here in Calgary is the Calgary Salutes Committee is standing up again. So it existed back in the 1990s when there were a bunch of deployments to uh, Yugoslavia, Yugoslavia. And then uh, when one brigade moved up to Edmonton and the base closed here, it kind of faded away. And then Edmonton salutes took off um, and, and does great work up in Edmonton still. And so uh, a couple of years ago, we reached out to city council and said, hey, why don't we reestablish Calgary salutes? And they passed the bylaw this past summer. They've selected committee members and, and are standing up that committee as we speak. So, um you know, I think there are some good news stories out there about how different communities are working to reconnect with the military and uh, ensure there's a strong bridge between what uh, what we're doing and um, and the respective communities that we're serving in. And that's the thing about reservists is we are part of the community. Um, the difference in reserve service from regular force service is it's service from a place, it's service from your hometown. Mm. And so you can have a full military career and um, anchor yourself in the community. And whereas regular force service is you got to be ready to serve all over the place. And uh, it, it gives you a different perspective. And the blending of these two is what allows us to maintain uh, strong relationships uh, with communities from coast to coast to coast. So, um, and one further thing, and, and I'm going to relay this back to Jalen and, and to Lori, is the role of our our honoraries or honorary colonels and how they connect units to communities. And, and I'll pass it over to them to comment a bit more. Sure. <laughs> no, and I was, I was proud to be part of evidence salutes for quite a few years. And that connection is, as Chris said, is, is really important to bring the community into the military, the military to the community. Cause it is, it is really important. I was proud to serve as an honorary colonel for seven years. Jalen, Jalen is serving as an honorary colonel for life. Apparently. <laughs> well, you got the coolest one tactical oh, yeah. helicopters. Like, well, well, okay. he, well he come on, come on. Fighter yeah, jets too, yeah but, I guess fighter jets yeah, are pretty that, sweet. That's too, a yeah. story. But no, just, it's, it's all about, as Chris said, it's all about the connections <laughs> that the community has with the military and, and vice versa, the military and their families, because we're all in this, whatever, this is we're all in this together and it's really really important that we maintain those connections you you've had like i mean we're joking about helicopters and fighter planes and i mean you know a moment of levity here but like you you've you've had a career that's just on a whole other level like i we interviewed chris hadfield a while ago and it's like he can't relate the average person can't relate to chris hadfield nope. and when, <laughs> no like I, I flew with him when he was going through f-18 is training. that right <laughs> oh, yeah. so so you've flown f-18s like oh, yeah. how, how do you even explain to somebody what that experience is like that's just a, like a, another worldly type experience right 
Well, well, it is. And, you know, I flew the Starfighter before that, which I, I love that airplane. But going from a Starfighter to an F-18 is, is going, you know, into, into space in, in, in relative terms. Obviously, it's not space. Chris Hadfield would, would know both of those. But it's, it's magic. You get in that airplane, and the F-35 now will be another step, yeah. equal step beyond the F-18. But just the technology and, you know, when you're on a squadron, and same in, in a, an armored unit or, or anywhere where you've got people working together, you've got a squadron, you've got, I've got, had 20 pilots on my squadron and about 220 people that, that allowed them to go and squint into the sun manfully every, every day. <laughs> and my job as a CEO, one of them was to make sure that they were connected to those folks that helped them do their, their really cool job because your job's cool, but without these other folks doing it, you're not going to be so cool. Yeah, I'm taking a look here for people watching us on YouTube. We've got the uh, CF-104 Starfighter up right now. That's got to have the coolest name of an aircraft. That, that's What made that plane so special? What did you love about that one? Well, it was, you know, if you parked an F-18 and a 104 side-by-side, you're my choice, I'd get in the 104. Not to go to war in, the F-18 was vastly more capable, but the Starfighter was just so freaking cool. Yeah. It was so much fun to fly. It looked magnificent. It looked like a Brancusi sculpture. It's just, uh, it's just the most beautiful thing to me, and I'm biased. Yeah, the most sure. beautiful airplane in the world. Can we talk? But we don't have to get political. But can we talk politics and like funding for the military and the average? I know that this is a story, no pun intended, flying under the radar. But we've been yeah. talking about replacing our fleet of airplanes for like 20 years. Well, um, we are going to replace the F-18 with the F-35. Our challenge is people. You know, we're supposed to have about 150 fighter pilots in the Air Force. We've got about 50. And I was part of the F-18 program from day one. And we were able to bring that airplane in because you were flying the older airplanes as we brought in the F-18. We don't have those people today. They don't exist. So it's going to be a real, real challenge. I mean, the commander of the Air Force is the son of a guy that I flew with when he was his father was going through pilot training. And he's a good, he's a good guy. He's a good commander. But he's got a heck of a challenge. And it's not just you know, pilots, it's technicians. And it's not just the Air Force, it's the Army and the Navy as well. We are drastically short. I think pick a number, 15,000, 16,000 short uh, in the in the military right now. And you can't get those folks off a shelf at Walmart. Yeah. You got to recruit them. You got to train them. You got to you got to look after them and their families to keep them around. So it's it's a real challenge going ahead. But Canadians deserve it. Colonel, do you do you pick up like is there a among the general population? Maybe you can talk to us about that recruitment and and, and those numbers that that uh, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Han was just mentioning. You're talking about what about twenty thousand people that they're looking to recruit. I mean, take us into that and and how that happens. Yeah, so um, I'd say the biggest challenge is just it, it's it is it goes back to that reconnecting with communities. And it's a very competitive labor market. Um, the fact is, young people today have all kinds of options open to them. And so we're competing for talent, and, and we have to make the story as to um, why service in the Canadian Armed Forces is, a, is compelling. And, you know, there's, there's the Canadian Armed Forces offer. We can talk about salary and benefits and career opportunities and education, all that. Um, but to be frank, you're not going to compete on a financial level with the private sector and such. So what is unique about the Canadian Armed Forces is that service and camaraderie that goes along with service. You will have unique experiences, um, ones that will put you on top of the world and ones that will break your heart within the military. And, um, you know, the... There's an absolutely unique but extremely rewarding uh, profession in the profession of arms. And um, 
it's it's not for everyone but it's actually i would say it's for more people than perhaps we uh people give themselves credit for and you know i'd say some of our challenges are internal in that i think uh, for a long time sort of institutionally there was kind of a selection culture within the military of you know you're lucky to get in the military and the fact is the military is lucky to have quality canadians that join it and so we have to compete for that talent uh ensure we're getting the word out about the opportunities the opportunities to serve all over canada to serve around the world or to serve from your community and, and contribute at home as well and make sure that people are aware of those opportunities because i can tell you that right now we're we're spending a lot of time getting back out in the community because a lot of people have never heard of the army reserve mm-hmm. it was to serve from their community and sort of have that stability if that's what they're looking for if that's civilian career they want to follow that this is an option to also serve and so as we make people aware of those opportunities we're seeing the interest level come up and we're trying to sort out the sort of processing side of it so that uh, people can get in within a reasonable period of time because if if you're 18 years old you're not going to wait 6 12 18 months uh, for enrollment and go off to basic training because you're getting offers from other employers so we need to get better and we've had a hard look internal litter processes for how can we streamline it and ensure that we're still getting quality applicants and quality recruits but that we're doing everything as efficiently as we can so we're respecting we're respecting their time and we're respecting that they've stepped up and volunteered to serve uh, the Canadian Armed Forces. I've so been, I'll stop there and let <laughs> I've been saying for a long time, uh, since I, I became an honorary colonel, and I, I, I fear that uh, some of the top level of command has uh, said, oh, there's Nye again. You know, can we just shut her up for a little bit? Because I've had the <laughs> yeah, conversation. Nice yeah, right. And I've had it, you know, I've had the conversations with, uh, you know, the, the Air Force commanders and, you know, all the way up to, you know, uh, General Air. I was on a conference call with him not too long ago. And the question was, when they came to me, I'm like, all right, so here we go again. I've been asking this question for eight years, or I'm going to have to tell you, we need to do a better job telling the story of the Canadian military. We need to do a better job letting people know what our members are doing, how they're doing it, where they're doing it, the opportunities that are available to them. We need to let Canadians, North Americans know. And I understand that organizations often like military, especially when uh, maybe they've been under fire over the past number of years, um, maybe turn in and say, okay, you know what, we're just going to be quiet, try and keep quiet and just maybe fly under the radar. But the fact is, let's, let's work on changing that narrative because, you know, that you know, the, 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 the controversies that have been in the military over the past number of years is not the entire military, right? And so let's tell all of the other good things that are happening there. I said, you've got some sexy equipment. It might be a little old. Show it off. <laughs> Get the people out there. And, um, and so I keep waving that flag over and over and over again. And, and I'm, 
hopeful that it's starting to change, but we must do a better job. Um, Jalen, you, uh, just for the benefit of our audience to know, in, in uh, just last year received the Queen's Platinum Jubilee Medal for your service to the military and veteran community. Uh, the year before that, you received the Minister of Veterans Affairs Commendation mm-hmm. uh, awarded to individuals who have performed commendable service to the care and well-being of veterans or to the remembrance of the sacrifices and achievement of Canadians in armed conflict. You've been recognized for, for what you bring to the table here. Um, you agreed to sit with us, but you have an appointment, which I means do. you're, you're going to be ducking out of the round table just a little bit early. But but I want to may, may, maybe give you a chance to, if there's something that we haven't addressed or touched on, obviously we're covering a lot of ground today, but but leave us with something to think about through this Remembrance Day weekend. You know, I, I, I'm going to go back to that that veteran um, outside of Benny Cemetery. Um when I was walking through that cemetery to begin with, I, I looked at the names um, of of the fallen and their ages, and they were 18, they were 19, some of them were 30 or mm. 34. And it was such a powerful moment. I thought to myself, my gosh, these young men um, gave their life so we could do and live our life the way that we want to. And And we have men and women who are still willing to do that today. Mm. This isn't just a 80 year ago thing. This still willing to do it today. The words that he said, um, you know, we'll never have a future if we don't remember the past, I think is even more important now, um, especially given some of the world issues that we're facing and what we're seeing. Um, but I would leave you with that and take a moment. Um, even if you're not going to a ceremony, I'm going to be doing the one at Beverly tomorrow. Take that moment. Um, a minute, 30 seconds, whatever it is, and pause and and, and give thanks. Um, and I'm going to keep waving that flag mm. until, well, they're not going to tell me to put it down, but I'm <laughs> going to keep waving that flag. And, and it's important. And I just urge, I know some people don't care, um, but I'd urge you to learn more about the men and women who serve and who are who are willing to give all. Hmm. Um, I, I did notice that Sharon uh, was was keen to learn a little bit about your poppy, the poppy that you're wearing. Is there? A, I imagine there's a story behind that one. Can you describe it for the podcast listeners? This um, poppy was gifted to me by a, a Métis woman, and it's a sweetgrass poppy, so it's made out of sweetgrass. That's uh, what she yeah. thought it was. Yeah. And uh, there's a specific name for it, and of course, now that you ask it, it's gone whoot, out of my head. But I kept it. I have a box um, of uh, you know sand from Juno Beach, a little piece of the crumbled Vimy monument. And this was in that box for a very long time because I didn't know if it was appropriate to wear it or not Okay. because I'm not Métis. And I asked her and she said, yeah, absolutely. And wear it with pride and then tell people about it. So this is the one that I wear uh, as well to, to honor our indigenous members. Of course, yesterday was indigenous veterans uh, yes. day. So I, I think it's absolutely beautiful, but yeah, it was gifted to me and I'm proud to wear it. Much respect. Yeah. Uh, that's Jalen Nye, honorary Colonel of 408 tactical helicopter squadron, uh, patron of the Edmonton garrison family, uh, military family resource center. We'll talk to you again soon, Jay. Thanks okay. for doing this. My pleasure. Uh, more with uh, Lori Hahn and Chris Hunt in just a quick second, but I wanted to let you know that this conversation is happening with the support of real talk partners, like our friends at Friesen brothers for more than 65 years in 16 different Alberta communities. Uh, Friesen brothers is making it easier for families to gather around the dinner table with uh, healthy meals that are affordable. Quite frankly, everybody knows that the cost of living is up these days. I want to encourage you to check out not just their weekly flyer. You can get it online at Friesen.com. That's F-R-E-S-O-N.com. But the Family Essentials flyer 
uh, gives you a chance to take a look at quality food for low prices every day. And it includes recipes, some of the fall favorites, the comfort food in there right now, including slow cooker pulled pork. Of course, that's Alberta pork. You can learn more by visiting Friesen.com, Alberta grown and Alberta owned. Our friends at Kubi Renewable Energy are hiring right now. If you're an experienced journey person, you've been an electrician for years and years, or maybe you're an apprentice and you're looking to be part of Canada's sustainable energy movement, nobody is installing more solar panels in Western Canada than Kubi Renewable Energy, which means they're growing their teams in Calgary, in Edmonton, in Kamloops, and elsewhere. You can check out the careers link online at kubienergy.ca to learn more about how you could join the team and help Kubi grow clean energy in Canada. At Complete Care Restoration, they're known across the province for helping folks get back on their feet after natural disaster strikes, fire, and flood. But sometimes they're called on to a job site. It could be what was supposed to be a small renovation. Next thing you know, you find black mold in the walls. Or maybe there's asbestos on a job site. Complete Care Restoration employs a team of full-service trades staff that are equipped and certified to perform all necessary repairs. They can sample and analyze building materials to ensure hazardous substances are properly addressed. At Complete Care Restoration, the safety of you and your family, as well as their own, is of utmost importance. Nobody will do a better job for you than the team at Complete Care Restoration. And we wanted to give a shout out to our friends at Eden Landscaping as well. It's not the time of year, of course, you know, where you're bringing bobcats into your backyard and tearing everything up. But if you want to have your landscaping project ready to go, shovels in the ground this spring, that means the planning, the design work has to start right now. For more than 20 years, Eden Landscaping has been working in the Metro Edmonton region custom plans and full service contracting which means you're not looking around to find somebody who can do excavation you don't need to find the fence person you don't need to go to the greenhouse yourself and pick out those trees when you work with eden you'll find out quickly they're great listeners you can learn more about how they work and get the conversation started online today at landscapeedmonton.ca We're hanging out with Lieutenant Colonel Retired Lori Hahn and Colonel Chris Hunt on this Remembrance Day edition of the Real Talk Roundtable. Uh, Colonel, if if you don't mind, we talk a lot about remembering people, remembering sacrifice, the personal angle of all of this. And I know that over the course of your 30 years, you've served alongside hundreds and hundreds of Canadian men and women, both at home and abroad. Is there one person in particular that you'll be thinking about today or tomorrow through the weekend that you'd be willing to talk to us about? Uh, it's less there's one than there's there, there's so many. And actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about a World War II veteran who I got to know uh, very well. Um, his name was uh, Ray Gilbert, and he was a, a retired trooper, so you know, uh, equivalent to a private in, in the armored force. And he actually served in the Dieppe raid. And was a uh, operator in a church. So he shared his story. He talked about landing on the beach at Tiap. Uh, he talked about how they, they fought all morning uh, from the tank, um, engaging German positions. And the Germans couldn't actually knock out uh, those particular tanks because the armor was so thick, but they had a variety of problems with mobility. And his tank got up off the beach, many others didn't. Uh, his tank pulled back to the beach and, and was involved with covering them with the ball. Uh, they actually 
fought until they ran out of ammunition. And then they sat in the tanks and waited to be captured because they could hear the machine gun rounds plinking off the outside of the tank and, you know, knew they'd be killed if they got out. So um, after after the battle was complete, the Germans came forward, took them prisoner, and uh, he spent the remainder of uh, the war in a, in a war camp. So um, he talked about his experiences there. Uh, I'd say what else is important is he talked about his experiences after the war. So he came back to Calgary, he raised a family, he went into business. After he retired from business, uh, he volunteered at the military museums and told his story. And, uh, you know, he told his story to uh, to my daughters when they were kids. And it made it personal for them. Uh, he treated them as if they were his granddaughters. And, uh, you know, he passed away in 2015, uh, into his 90s. But, uh, you know, that personal connection um, stays with me. And, you know, his personality and his um, his determination is what I see in our soldiers today as well. Wow. Uh, I want to let people know, uh, Colonel, that, that if you Google uh, Ray Gilbert, Calgary Tanks. You can actually find about an hour-long interview with them on YouTube. Uh, people can check out the militarymuseums.ca. If you're watching this live, we've just dropped the link into our chat, and we'll be sure to put that into the show notes as well uh, on YouTube and on the podcast. Um, it's interesting for me, Lori, to watch you listening to a story like that. What's going through your mind? Well, it is a great story, and there's many like that. Uh, my sort of equivalent to that, I guess, would be a guy named Lynn Birchall, who Winston Churchill called the savior of Ceylon. And I knew Len as an honorary colonel. Uh, we were together back in the day. He's passed away now. But he was flying a Canso uh, in January of 1942 after Pearl Harbor out of Ceylon. And they were trying to find the Japanese fleet. And they were having trouble doing that. And he located them. And he circled the fleet or in the vicinity and warned you pass the warning and so on, and they diverted a British flotilla to cut off the Japanese fleet, and the Japanese decided to turn around and go find an easier target. But in the process, Len was shot down, mm. and he spent the rest of the war uh, in a POW camp being treated incredibly badly. He was the senior officer in that particular camp. He was a squadron leader, uh, which is like a major in the Royal Air Force, uh, and he was he took all the punishment for his for his troops, and. There was one of the Japanese sergeants who was beating an American, a crippled American POW, and Birchall beat the crap out of him. Mm. And, of course, that was not uh, taken with good humor by the Japanese. So he was, the whole camp was there. He was marched out in front of the camp, and he was going to be executed. There was a, a trial, and he was going to be executed for, for treason. And he was marched out in front of the camp, blindfolded. And he said he stood there, and he was ready to die. And a guy raised his sword, and swished and just just nicked his neck and then he let him go and this happened three days in a row wow they'd marched out in front of the whole camp said you're gonna die and he didn't on the third day he got up and he said sergeant whatever his name was you've just made a terrible mistake we're gonna win this war and i'm gonna watch you hang and they won we won the war and through some of birchall's testimony that guy and a bunch of others were, were convicted of war crimes and he was there when the guy was hanged and he said you expletive i told you we were going to win the war i'm going to watch you hang now i'm going to watch you hang and he did and knew him you know many, years and years later as an honorary colonel he was well into his 80s but people still listen to lynn what he said had an impact on them and 
I think changed a lot of them about their sort of attitude to now there's a guy who's dedicated. Yeah. So Len is kind of my, uh, one of my equipment. I've got a couple of others, but, but Len was, was one that stands out to me. It's always, hey, yeah, go ahead, Chris. Uh, there is one more I'd like to talk about too. I'd like to talk about uh, Captain Nicola Goddard. Yes. So uh, I served with her in Afghanistan. We we're in the same battle group. I worked in the battle group headquarters and she was a forward observation officer. So um, she was from, um, First Royal Canadian Horse Artillery, and she was attached to Charlie Company of uh, Princes of First Battalion, Prince Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. So her job was to uh, call in artillery, to call in airstrikes, to assist that infantry company as needed. Um, so just thinking back to a, a couple of weeks before she was killed in, in action in Panjway, um, I was on duty one night in the Alger headquarters, and, and we got rocketed at CAF. And uh, uh, Captain Gardard was out with uh, some of the other artillery troops, and they were doing uh, a live fire mortar shoot just at uh, a range we used just outside of uh, Kandahar Airfield. Within seconds, she came up on the radio and said that she'd identified the point of origin of the rockets. She'd already turned her mortars around and requested permission to engage. And, uh, you know, it just, it went to what a professional she was. And at the time, she was told to hold fire because they were sending out attack helicopters to deal with the situation. But um, for everyone that served with her, she was just always on top of it. Um, extremely professional officer. Uh, spent weeks at a time out with the infantry company ensuring that they had um, that joint fire support that they needed to succeed in their missions. And it was just incredibly sad when she was killed. Um, it, it struck everyone hard. And then, you know, here in Canada was uh, the first female uh, killed in action in, in many decades. And, um, you know, I think everyone took that forward uh, to redefine what being a professional is. And um, the fact that whoever you are, it's about your character. And, and that's what's kind of giving you success in operations. And there was a good book. I never met Captain Goddard, but there was a good book uh, published about her life. It was called, I think, Sundance is Down. And it was an inspiring story, as, as Chris said. Mm. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we maybe, is, is, we look back on, like Jaylin kind of alluded to it, where she said that her grandfather, he, he told her, like, helped people figure out how to drive during the war. There, there's a, it's I very think there's more to it than that. I think there's probably more to it than that. Um, but but kind of the story, there was like this trend that we recognize now um, of of men and women that were coming back, uh, you know, World War One, World War Two um, with with what we understand now to be PTSD um, and, and wrestling with demons for the rest of their lives in many cases. And just to say it, um, alcoholism, uh, drug use and abuse, domestic violence, uh, mental health struggles, suicide. I mean, there, there are a lot of implications here through the years. And, you know, we talked about things like shell shock uh, without really adequately addressing it. Um, Colonel, can I ask you about, you know, what life is like now support wise and otherwise uh, for Canadian veterans that are returning home after service, what that integration is like? I mean, I'm on in a lighthearted note, I'm asking here, Lori, you know, once you've flown a CF-18, nobody else can really relate to what you've done. But for any person that has served internationally, in particular in these hot zones uh, with horrific things happening everywhere, 
to come back to Calgary or Edmonton and, and go to the mall with your family. Uh, I can't imagine what that experience would be like. Can you help us understand that? Um, hopefully. I mean, it it is a challenge. I remember coming back from Kandahar to Edmonton. So I lived in Edmonton at the time and getting, um, I, I was home on leave for a couple of weeks in, in June. And, you know, June in Edmonton just looked like paradise compared to Kandahar. You know, Kandahar, extremely dry, uh, desert. And then to, to come back to the greenery of Edmonton um, was almost overwhelming. Uh, the, the stress of being on, on combat operations, it can take a while to kind of dial down. And they did something very smart at the end of my tour where um, we all went to Cyprus for three days prior to redeploying in Canada. And sort of half that time you were in various lectures about, hey, here's Here's the support services available. Here's kind of what you can expect to be going through as part of that process of reintegration. And uh, the other half of the time, you know, we could go to the beach. We could um, we could spend time with each other in a non-stressful environment and get our stories in and, and talk to each other. So that was really helpful and ease the transition prior to going back into home life. But, you know, it takes time. And um, uh, it, it's challenging. It's challenging for the families receiving soldiers because they've had to adjust. They've had to function without their family member for six months and or longer in some cases. And um, and it takes time for everyone to reconnect and to uh, figure out how to work together. Yeah. It's a challenging time for families, and, and that's why, once again, the, the Military Family Resource Centers are really important, and the programs they run to help families through those transitions are important. Now, you layer on top of that things like people may get posted to another city uh, around the same time as they, they come back from operations, and so there can be additional stresses and such as well. And that's why it's really important we've got those institutional supports to help people. Huh. I, I met, when I was, whenever I was here, uh, I met every airplane coming back from Afghanistan, and I may have met Colonel Hunt on one of his returns. I'm, I, I don't know. But the Cyprus de-stressing de, uh, was a really good thing to do because you're, you're leaving a, a you know pretty intense environment, coming right back home, and it's hard to get rid of that stuff. And so Cyprus, I think, was really important uh, to, to do that. And when I'd meet airplanes, I'd, guys would be coming off the airplanes, a couple would be coming off with black eyes or whatever. And I would always ask the question. They said, was that Afghanistan or Cyprus? <laughs> it was, and it was always Cyprus because part of de-stressing was, okay, you got to let off a little steam from time to time. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, it, it became a joke. But every single time, it was Cyprus, not Afghanistan. But it served a valuable purpose, which Colonel Hunt would certainly know. I don't want to take for granted. The, I don't want to assume anything. Why was it? might be an obvious question, but why was it so important for you to meet every aircraft coming home? Well, as, as a retired military officer and had having been to Afghanistan a number of times with yeah. the troops, and I started doing it before that. I mean, the first airplane I met was uh, 24th of January. I was elected on the 23rd of January, 2006. I knew there was an airplane coming back on the 24th with some wounded, uh, Paul Franklin, uh, Salikin, and Bailey. Uh, and they were there when the diplomat was, uh, was killed. And I knew Rick Hillier was going to be there, and I'd never met him yet. So I went up to the airport the next morning, early, early, said who I was, said, do you mind if I go onto the ramp to meet the airplane? And they were very accommodating. So I met uh, met the three wounded soldiers. Now, they were 
in really bad shape. So I wasn't chatting with them, but it's been a long time with Rick, Rick Hillier, got to know him a little bit. And then it just, it just built from there. And I, it became sort of a self-imposed duty that every airplane that was leaving and every airplane that was coming home, if I was in the city, I was going to be there 24 seven. And, uh, it just, it felt good to me. And I, I think it probably meant something to, to at least some of them. A couple of guys I met, a guy who had been a military policeman working for me in Cold Lake, he came off an airplane on one of the deployments, and I met him at the bottom and said, Vargas, how you doing? Thanks for being there, all that kind of stuff. And about a year and a half later, I'm meeting another airplane, and he got off the airplane again. I said, Vargas, we've got to stop meeting like this. Mm. But, you know, it was those, a couple of personal ones, but more than that, it was just all those men and women coming back. You know, if I was a, a smiling face welcoming him home, that was important to me and hopefully it meant a little bit of something to them. You were with uh, our friend, uh, Michelle Lang, like the, the journalist that was uh, that died. You you were with her like the day before. Well, the, the day before. We were there doing one of our Christmas uh, things, and uh, Gary Lund was the uh, uh, minister of sport, and he had uh, mitts, Olympic mitts. We were thousands of these mm -hmm. mitts we were passing out. And we were, we'd been out doing the thing in the boondocks and whatnot, and we were back in, in CAF and uh, being interviewed by Michelle Lang, and very nice lady and whatnot and all ops normal and then we left and then the next day she went out and was was killed I, I, it was probably an ied I, I can't remember but she died the next day and it was just you know that brings it home that uh here one day and gone the next and you just don't know in that environment and certainly colonel hunt has seen that in, in spades yeah colonel you want to comment on that um yeah and, and nick goddard is a great example where um, I remember seeing her in the battle group headquarters basically the, the day before she was killed and she was off on a computer just to email back home and she So yeah, it it really drives home that uh, you know, by the grace of God, right? That's it's all about time and space. And if you're in the wrong space at the wrong time, uh, it can happen to anyone. Yeah. You know, just one other thing I want to throw out there. We, we've talked a lot. We've talked about fighter pilots. We've talked about tankers. We've talked about uh, I'll, I'll tell you, some of the bravest folks in Afghanistan were the truck drivers that drove the fuel trucks uh, that brought forward fuel and other supplies uh, to, to the combat. They had to navigate those roads knowing them as uh, improvised explosive devices. And uh, they weren't in... You know, armored personnel carriers, they went into tanks. They were driving gas trucks yeah. and diesel trucks. And that's why everyone who's uh, part of those combined arms teams, uh, from from the cook to uh, to the signal, uh, to the logistician, they're all an essential part of the team. Uh, otherwise, nothing else happens. Yeah, no, and I appreciate you making that point. Um, you know, we've got a lot of comments. I haven't spent much time jumping into the live chat here, but I just want to mention that there are so many people telling their families' personal stories, talking about their personal experiences. Uh, Lauren Corbett, who had a long career as a, as a firefighter and deputy chief, says uh, a different person comes back than the one yeah, who left. For sure. You know, he says you're, you're reconnecting to a life that most take for granted. Uh, noob in the live chat says a friend told me a story when his dad came home from a deployment they were playing on the grass and his dad burst out of the house i don't know this is choking me up um his dad burst out of the house and hauled them off the grass he was reacting to grass being unsafe from mines soldiers carry a lot with them and it doesn't end in theater yeah. um, i mean you see those scenes I, I recognize it's hollywood to a certain degree but also it's real life you know, veterans come back and like the like a, a, a firework going off or like a, a cabinet door slamming or something unexpected in traffic 
uh, can happen. And obviously there's those, those moments that, uh, that we understand, um, you know, I mean, first responders here are, are starting to, I think the advancements we're making in understanding mental health more are referring to mental health injuries mm-hmm. uh, because I know that the men and women that serve uh, in the armed forces are probably similar a, a lot to uh, professional athletes, to first responders as well, who don't like, who, who, who want to play hurt. Um, and, and, and they don't like to tell their team that they don't know that they can show up, that they don't know they can be there a hundred percent. But if you, if they understand that they have a knee injury or a hip injury, they, they recognize they can't play. Um, and if you refer to it as a mental health injury, it's helping us better understand that this is something uh, to a certain degree, maybe outside of your control, that you're going to need the appropriate therapies and resources. And I'm just grateful that we're having those conversations, that we can speak openly and freely about this, because for many, many decades, we just didn't. Yeah, because you have a mental injury doesn't make you weak. Of course. You know, it, it's it's an injury like anything else. Yes. It, it, you know, you can see a broken arm or a broken leg or, or a missing leg, but you can't see the injury until it comes out in you know, probably an inappropriate way that people look at it and say, what the heck is wrong with you? Yeah. Well, you know, I've, I've experienced something that, that you haven't and I need help. So it, it's not a weakness to ask for help. We encourage people to please, please, please ask for help because it, it is available, but you got to get it. But a lot of times people are too proud saying, look, I can handle this. Yeah. Well, maybe you can, maybe you can't. Before we wrap, I, uh, oh, go ahead, Chris. Yeah. Uh, you know, I agree with all of that. And um, war is a very deeply personal thing. And what people come back with and the experiences they come back with are going to vary from individual to individual based off their, their experiences in theater, uh, the training and preparation they had before, and, and just who they are as individuals. And so um, many people come back with a variety of uh, injuries, uh, uh, mental health injuries and such as well. Um, other people have, have come back and... Uh, been able to um, put those experiences and make a part of who they are and and how they continue to contribute to their communities going forward. So, you know, we we often uh, rightly spend a lot of time talking about the mental health injuries that have been incurred, but I I also want to ensure that uh, people understand. I don't want to put an exact percentage on it, but I would say a majority of veterans that come back um, are coming back from a a situation of almost post-traumatic growth where there's been numerous times throughout my, uh, my civilian career where, um, you know, the office space I'm working in, people are very stressed. And um, my perspective is, you know, well, no one's shooting at us it's going to be okay. We're going to sit down, we're going to sort out problems here and we're going to come up with solutions and we're going to push on. And so that kind of experience that people have overseas can also make them extremely valuable for uh, civilian organizations, for communities. And, you know, uh, you could probably have a look around Alberta and I personally know of several folks that are now uh, city managers uh, executives in various corporations uh, who I served with overseas uh, because they're bringing those leadership skills back. They're bringing that uh, determination to help an organization succeed. And they're contributing uh, to Canadian society in new ways that, uh, you know, it, it is, is important for everyone as well. That's such a great point. Uh, Brian in our live chat says, my dad never talked about what he did in World War II after he passed 
when we were going through his stuff, he had photos of a death camp that his unit had liberated. Wow, that's incredible, Brian. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, before we thank you both for your time, I want to talk about the future of Remembrance. Uh, and, and Lori, I know that, that you're incredibly proud to be associated with and to support the No Stone Left Alone initiative. People can check out nostoneleftalone.ca. Uh, maybe just quickly, you could tee that up for anybody that may not be familiar uh, with what it is and then talk about why it's so important to Where you. Our role with No Stone Left Alone is to, to honor, educate, and remember. And it's through school children. We want to instill in them the, the act of remembrance, the, the respect for the, the service. And it started in 2011. I've been with them since we're in our 13th year. We do ceremonies across Canada where students lay poppies on headstones, recite the name of the soldier, thank them for their service. Last year, almost 10,000 students laid almost 90,000, 80,000 wow. poppies on headstones, 226 ceremonies in Canada, uh, uh, France, uh, Poland. This year we're in Canada, France, Poland, uh, Netherlands. I just came back from doing a, a ceremony at Arlington National Cemetery in Washington, which was very moving because there's a number of Canadians, including Congressional Medal of Honor winners, uh, buried at Arlington. So it just, it grows and grows and grows. And it's so important to us to uh, install, inculcate that that habit of remembrance and, and, and reverence for what people have done in the past and frankly, what people are doing today to, to keep us safe and to give us the kind of life that we want to have. So No Snow Left Alone is absolutely the best thing I'm doing right now. Yeah. I didn't know you had been to Arlington. That must have been it was It was incredibly quite moving. meaningful. It's, it's a square mile, and there's about 650,000 headstones there, 450,000 or so military. Wives can be buried with their husbands there. Uh, JFK is buried there, of course, and, and the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And it's just it's just a very moving place just to walk around and read the headstones. The headstones go back to you know pre Civil War, go back to the wow. uh, the Indian Wars. It's uh, it's a pretty pretty incredible place, and uh, it was very moving to be there. And we'll be there again every year with No Stone Left Alone, honoring Canadians and Americans who died under Canadian command, uh, who are buried at Arlington. Hmm. Uh, Colonel, to you, the future of Remembrance Day. How, how do you interpret the question? What do you want people thinking about? I'd like people to get out there and, and learn our stories. So, um, you know, there's probably many listeners who uh, have seen the movie Fury with Brad Pitt. Uh, when I first watched it, I was like, I think they ripped this off because there, there's actually a story about a guy named Lieutenant Arnie Charbonneau from the King's Own Foundry Regiment who fought in the Battle of uh, Mata Corvino uh, in the Italian campaign. And, and basically... Most of the the tanks were ordered to advance through this town. Uh, three of the tanks in this troop were knocked out, and as uh, as he rounded a corner, uh, there was a German anti-tank gun that was pointed straight at him. So his, his driver gunned it, they ran over the tank gun, and then they got stuck on top of it. <laughs> uh, and they were they were in a village surrounded by a company of German Fallschirmjägers, so those are paratroopers, who then attacked the tank for the next several hours. Um, and uh, they were able to fight them off. Uh, they were literally like hanging on to their hatches so the Germans can open it and throw a hand grenade in. Uh, and when darkness fell, uh, they, they went out through the escape hatch in the bottom of the tank and actually got his crew back to Canadian lines, and they were back in action the next day. Wow, um, that's incredible. I had the chance to talk to his son, and his son was saying, his dad told him the only reason they didn't uh, get brewed up and killed in that tank was 
shortly after they ran over the anti-tank gun, they ran out of gas. And so <laughs> there was nothing for uh, nothing to burn. Uh, and the other interesting thing, which makes this an even more interesting Canadian story, is uh, Arnie Charbonneau played in the CFL, and his name's actually on the Grey Cup as well. So, you know, wow. I, I offer this as an example of Hollywood's one thing. We have our own history, and it's spectacular. And uh, I think as Canadians uh, visit the museums, read the history books, um, watch the videos, watch watch the interviews with her veterans, and, and learn about our history. Yeah. And that's what's going to set us up for the future. You bet. Beautifully said. That's Colonel Chris Hunt uh, joining us from Calgary. He currently commands... 41 Canadian Brigade Group, which compromises nine different Army Reserve units across the province with approximately 1,700 soldiers. Uh, we've also been joined earlier today by Honorary Colonel Jalen Nye, a wonderful uh, friend and obviously a passionate supporter of uh, the Canadian forces. And Lieutenant Colonel Retired Lori Hahn uh, also has been an Honorary Colonel and, of course, a member of Parliament uh, serving Canadians in a different capacity for about 10 years. Uh, I'm so grateful for the both of you today. Thank you for making this real talk about Remembrance Day. It was a real pleasure to be here with, with Chris and, and Jay Lynn and, and you. Thanks, Lori. Thanks, thanks for what you do. Thanks, Chris. We appreciate thanks, it. Thanks, Ryan. And uh, thanks. It's great to see you again, Lori. You bet. All right. Real talkers, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this. You know where to find us. Talk at ryanjesperson.com is where you can send us an email. Of course, you'll be able to find us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok as well. Lori, you got to get out of here. We kept you longer than we said we would. Thanks, pal. It's always so good to see you there. Uh, very quickly, we want to mention to you before we get to the flamethrower, our tradition that at AthabascaU.ca, you can learn a little bit more about Athabasca University right now. It's Canada's open university. They just revamped their website, by the way, this week. Did a beautiful job on it. You can get started on finding your perfect fit if you're looking for the AU Advantage. You want to learn more about what that is? Well, it starts with flexible study options, accessibility for students around the world. Your only commute is to your tablet, your laptop. The personalized learning plans and a supportive community. It's easy to apply. You'll find all the details online at AthabascaU.ca. John Hicks, the technical producer of this show. It's uh, been a busy morning. You've done an amazing job uh, for those that have been watching on YouTube to see some of the, the photos here, the videos yeah. that support some of these stories. Mm -hmm. If you're like me uh, around Remembrance Day, to me, I always appreciate the opportunity for a perspective check, mm -hmm. for a gratitude check. Um, and, and to understand and recognize, I saw somebody in our chat, I don't remember who it was, but they just said whenever they see a man or woman in uniform, they, they stop them when appropriate and just say thank you for your service. Yeah. Something we hope we do year round, but especially this time of year. Yeah, we got to. You know, my grandfather was in the Korean War and, you know, it's always something I think about around this time. But I love something that Chris said was, you know, and we do it around here, too. Like when we have a hard day, when we have a stressful day, we always yeah. say it could be worse. Like yeah. there's no one shooting at us. There's no one. You know, we have no fears. We're living in a. In a in a safe environment, we're very lucky, and it's it's because of those men and women. So yeah. you know, like I, these people who you know kind of want to, like Jalen and I was saying, a lot of people don't care, a lot of people brush it aside. Like you, you know, maybe when you're younger, you might have that thought in your head, but as you grow older, and you mm. and especially when when my grandfather was near the end of his life, I started to ask him. You know, now that I'm a man, and you know, he starts to tell me some of the the horrible things, like. Like Chris said, it's life changing to yeah. these people. Like, 
I, I don't understand how some of them come back. Well, a lot of them come back, like he said, different people. So again, it was great for them to be, uh, you know, championing some of these causes that help these people when they come back. But Remembrance Day should be a day. Throw in a poppy, call someone you know. And if you don't know anyone who's serving in your family, well, that's crazy because I think everyone knows someone mm. who's been been in combat Some or, or knows someone. Yeah. Find someone, you know, find someone, find a connection, you know, yeah. read up, connect with someone and just thank them. Yeah, this is I'm, I'm showing a photo for those of you on YouTube. This is uh, my grandpa, Stanley Wilfred Jesperson. He's who I think of on Remembrance Day. And he was so proud uh, to be a, a mechanic with the Royal Canadian yeah. Air Force and to serve in that capacity. He was colorblind. He always wanted to fly, but he was colorblind. Mm. So he couldn't, but he was a very talented trumpet player uh, and obviously play, play the bugle. And I think of when I hear the last post on Remembrance Day, I think of my grandpa. Yeah who would play it at their home in Calgary. And I would just get chills when I hear it. Mm -hmm. I was walking our dog yesterday down our street. This makes me sound like a creep. I'm not a creep, but I could see through the big window, the big front window of a home just across the street from us, uh, a high school student uh, that lives in that house. Um, I don't know if he's an army cadet or what it was, mm -hmm. but he was rehearsing. He was practicing with his trumpet playing the last post. And I just stopped and I just sat there. Wow. I didn't sit. I stood and I just listened to him play and then moved on. And it just, as you can tell, it's still sort of hitting me now. Just mm -hmm. really powerful stuff. Everybody has their stories. Uh, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect, of course, on Saturday uh, at 11 a.m. That will be the official moment of silence. And, of course, Remembrance Day ceremonies happening in your community, regardless of where you are. If you are in Edmonton, remember that uh, Jay Lynn and I will be emceeing the remembrance ceremony at the Beverly Cenotaph if you would like to join her there. We're going to change the pace a little bit because it's Friday. <laughs> gonna, there's there's no smooth way to... the record we're gonna immediately. Just, we're just going to scratch the record every Friday, uh, regardless of what Friday it is. Our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park, that's Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, Baseline Road, they give us a chance to air our beef, so to speak, to turn up the heat. We want to hear it. We want you to bring your hot takes because it's the flamethrower presented by the DQs of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. This is from Chris. It's Calgary Chris that sent us an email. He says, uh, Jespo, it's, it's not hard to see that Alberta is on the fast track to the privatization of health care. Yesterday, health minister said differently to me, but I digress. Chris says, thanks to the greed, lack of compassion of our current provincial government. He said, recently I heard from an oncologist down in Calgary that 10,000 people in that city are currently battling cancer. The impact of this heartless government will be devastating for all Albertans for generations to come, says Chris. And what about uh, Premier meeting with former Fox News personality Tucker Carlson. Should we be surprised? I'm not, but it adds to the weight that I feel for further proof that this premier's lost sight of serving the people. Should we be calling her and bowing down to Queen Smith? Wonders Calgary Chris. Thanks for the email, pal. This one from Lisa, who says, may I just say that I am far from support of moving from a Canada pension plan to an Alberta pension plan. CPP is one of the best managed pensions in the world. Its economies of scale dwarf anything Alberta thinks it could accomplish. CPP is completely portable within Canada, making retirement choices easier. 
communication from this government indicates to me they have no intention of creating an independent board to manage funds. This further indicates to me that they may be biased in their choices of where to invest these funds. And finally, there's a complete lack of understanding on how the existing plan works. And that gives me no confidence in the proposed Alberta plan. It's simple. You pay in, your employer pays in, the money's invested free of government interference, and you or your heirs get the money when you retire. Yet, this provincial government continues to misrepresent how it works. To conclude, says Lisa, stop wasting Alberta's money on this asinine scheme to screw over the rest of Canada and put it to good use, fixing some of our major problems at home. Oh, and by the way, says Lisa, end the moratorium on renewables and stop playing around with coal mining in the Rockies. And finally, this one from Daryl, who says, it's coming up to Remembrance Day, friends, a time to honor and remember those who sacrificed their lives for our freedom. Yet I can't help but notice people all around me casually strolling around without wearing a poppy. Seriously, it's not just a pin. It's a symbol of gratitude and respect for the brave men and women who fought for the very freedoms we enjoy today. It's not about fashion. It's about acknowledging the sacrifices made on our behalf. So what's the deal with people ignoring this simple gesture? It's a statement of gratitude, wearing a poppy the least we can do to show our appreciation. It's not too much to ask, is it? So come on, real talkers. Let's put on those poppies and respect the real heroes who make it possible for us to live in a free world. That from Daryl. You can send us your trash talk. Sorry, your flamethrower anytime by emailing talk at ryanjesperson.com. The flamethrower is proudly presented every single Friday right here on the show by the DQs of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. We're going to observe the stat on Monday, meaning the next live episode, well, live or later on demand of Real Talk, will be coming up on Tuesday. Thanks for being a part of this one, friends, and we'll talk to you soon. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, executive producer Josh Dunford, technical producer John Hicks, general manager Katie Cook-Chivers, account coordinator Lawrence Durlego, human resources Lena Shepherd, website design Mike Johnston, voiceover by me, Perry Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Supriya Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandi Morin, Anne Castleman, Ori Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a relay project. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.